Happy Thanksgiving and welcome back to The Law. I am DK Williams. This is episode 13. We're going to talk about Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, a case from 1886. As always, The Law with DK Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember to follow me on Twitter at BlueCarp and on Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. We can continue the discussion there. I'd love to do that. Let me know what you think. If you have any comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. And please share these podcasts if you like them or you're otherwise inclined. This case actually was suggested by uh, someone via Facebook. So um, that shows you that I will take suggestions. Before we dive into this case, I just want to briefly mention the notion of democracy and how some profess their love for it. You see it frequently now. People use it against the Electoral College. They use it against the argument, or they use it for an argument that each state should not get two senators. Why does Wyoming have two senators? And California does too, right? Oh, it's that's not democracy. Of course, that's the entire point. But the devotion to democracy won't go away. You see it on social media. You see it from progressive status, like the latest darling Xi Guevara. Polly Pot, Bolshevik Barbie, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and others, a lot of others. But pure democracy is a horrible idea. Our founding fathers knew that, philosophers knew that, and communicate this to people. Pure democracy, pure democracy means that if 51% of the people vote to ban the Koran, they can. Because democracy, it means that if 51% vote to ban Lady Chatterley's lover, or Harry Potter, or whatever, they can. Because democracy, and that this is what people are bowing down to. This is what people are, are expressing their devotion to. It's frightening. If 50.1% want to ban all the Irish people, they can. So when the people talk about this devotion to democracy, they want pure democracy or real democracy. It is the concept that the majority can do whatever they want. It is a frightening notion. It is an ignorant and a hateful notion. So don't let people get away with this when they talk about, oh, that's not democratic. We need more democracy. Point out to them what that really means. So back to the case at hand. This case was suggested by Raymond Doan. He was a libertarian candidate for Colorado Congressional District 1 this year. I had not heard about it until he had mentioned it, so I looked it up and read it. Now, some cite this case for the proposition that corporations have 14th Amendment rights to due process or equal protection. Yet it doesn't say that. And let me try to explain the confusion. Now, I will look at some background information when I look, uh, look up these cases before I read the actual case. Because, you know, I always read the actual cases. I encourage everyone to read original sources. And Wikipedia actually does a good job of summarizing the confusion around this particular case. Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad Company. Again, it's an 1886 case, and Wikipedia is okay for basic info like dates and citations that they link to. So you can see you know, better sources than just Wikipedia. And I know people can change Wikipedia at any time. Usually it's changed back pretty quickly if it's just blatantly wrong. And I don't use it for nuanced or subtle distinctions. But basic stuff's all right. This case is a corporate law case from the U.S. Supreme Court on taxation of railroad properties. Now, a headnote issued by the court reporter claimed that the sense of the court regarding the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, as it might apply to corporations, without the court actually having said anything about it in the actual opinion. So this is what's important to remember about reading a case. First-year law students learn this, but it's not that big of a deal. It's a simple concept. When you read a Supreme Court case, 
there's an introduction before you get to the part where a Supreme Court justice is actually writing the opinion of the court. That introduction, sometimes called head notes or a head note, is written by someone who's not on the court, obviously. He's like a reporter, usually. A court reporter, not a news reporter. A court reporter. That person is supposed to summarize what the court did in the actual opinion, but it is not the opinion itself. So the court reporter who wrote the introduction in the Santa Clara case said something the court did not actually say. And we'll explain that a little bit more about actually what happened in this case. Let's talk about this concept of corporation having the rights of individuals. Now, we discussed this in the podcast where we went over Citizens United. It's the same idea, but the best way of thinking about it is that corporations don't have rights, but the people who comprise the corporation do. Now, remember my example back from the Citizens United podcast about a guy who's selling hot dogs out of a cart. That guy has rights. Nobody denies that. No one would dispute it. And let's say the local city council is going to consider regulations on hot dog carts. That guy has the right to be heard on that topic. Clearly, nobody argues that. But if he incorporates his hot dog cart, does anything change? Well, apparently to those who hate Citizens United, everything changes once you incorporate. You no longer have any rights. But it doesn't actually change. That's why their argument is wrong. He can still go to the city council and be heard on the topic. The fact he incorporated his business is irrelevant. So it's easy to see when one person, a sole proprietor, incorporates, right? It's still just one person. The concept does not change no matter how big his corporation becomes. So our sole proprietor has incorporated. Then he brings in a business partner who also has a hot dog cart. They merge. They agree that each owns 50% of the new business. Can each of them still be heard at the city council meeting? Of course they can, because they're individuals. Incorporation doesn't change it, whether it's one person in the corporation or two. You can see how this number is just going to get bigger and bigger. But Dave, someone might say, what if they write the city council and sign it with a corporate name? Their corporate name is Hot Dogs R Us. That doesn't change anything. Hot Dogs R Us is just two individuals at this point in our scenario. Two people... They each own 50% of their little corporation. They each have one hot dog cart and they each run that hot dog cart. It's two individuals. Their individual rights aren't changed at all because they've entered into a voluntary agreement with each other and they've incorporated. And what happens if they expand? They're doing well selling hot dogs. The two of them can only operate one cart at a time, right? So they hire three people as employees to operate three new carts that they purchased. Corporation is growing. Can these two owners still talk to the city council? Do they still have First Amendment rights? Of course they do. Can they write letters to the city council expressing their concerns about proposed new food cart regulations? Of course they can. The fact that they are a corporation with employees does not change anything. The two individual owners have individual rights. The fact that they've incorporated is irrelevant. Now let's say 10 years later, Hot Dogs R Us is now a huge publicly traded company with carts all over the United States and China. What has changed other than the number of people in the corporation? Nothing. The concept has not changed. The number of individuals who have entered into a voluntary arrangement to be a part of a corporation, to buy its stock, to work for it, to be an officer of the corporation, that number doesn't affect any of their individual rights. If the corporation, through its board of directors, again, who are just individuals with individual rights, if the corporation, through them, decides to say something and some shareholder disagrees, the shareholder can sell his shares and voluntarily leave 
just like he voluntarily joined. A corporation is nothing except a collection of individuals in a voluntary association. You think collectivists would get this, but they don't. Not many of them don't. They oppose the Citizens United case because they think that the government should be able to ban something a corporation said. But just because the individuals in that corporation have voluntarily associated with an, uh, one another, they still have their individual rights. If one of them put out that documentary blasting Hillary Clinton that they wanted to ban in Citizens United, well, one person can do it, right? Well, the fact that two of them want to do it, or three or 10 or 20, and they've incorporated and want to do it, does not change their individual rights by a voluntary agreement. It doesn't change it. This argument is absolutely absurd, really. I mean, and it's a good thing the Supreme Court got Citizens United right. Otherwise, the government could censor documentaries, as in that case, or books, as they discussed in that case. And go back and revisit that podcast if you are so inclined. In sum, the government cannot ban your expression just because you've entered into a voluntary association, and that voluntary association is called a corporation. What if the voluntary association was called a church, or a union, or a charity, or whatever the entity might be that's recognized by the law? It doesn't change the individual's rights to speak. So back to the Santa Clara case versus Southern Railroad Company. The head note, which is not the work of the court, but are simply the work of the reporter who is giving his understanding of the decision and is prepared for the convenience of the profession. That's what they say. So it's written by the court reporter. The reporter wrote in the head note, quote, one of the points made and discussed at length in the brief of counsel for defendants was that corporations are persons within the meaning of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Before argument, the Chief Justice said, the court does not wish to hear argument on the question whether the provision in the 14th Amendment, which forbids a state to deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, applies to corporations. We are all of the opinion that it does. That's in the head note. It is not in the case. So the head note was reporting by the court reporter of the Chief Justice's interpretation of all of the court's opinions. But that issue is not in the actual court's opinion. And the court reporter actually thought about this before he included it in there. So he wrote a letter to the Chief Justice at the time, Morrison Waite, dated in 1886, he wanted to make sure his headnote was correct, and he wrote, Dear Chief Justice, I have a memorandum in the California case, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad Company, as follows. In opening, the court stated that it did not wish to hear argument on the question whether the 14th Amendment applies to such corporations as are parties in these suits. All the judges were of the opinion that it does. The Supreme Court just Chief Justice replied back to him, I think your memorandum in the California railroad tax cases expresses with sufficient accuracy what was said before the argument began. Okay. So the Chief Justice is saying, yeah, okay, that's what we said, but they didn't put it in the opinion. So it's got zero precedential value. A historian discovered these letters while he was doing research on the Chief Justice, Morrison Waite at the time. The historian wrote, in other words, the reporter got to decide whether or not he wanted to put that in the head notes. And if he had not, if he had left that part out, if the court reporter had left that out, not the court, not any one of the Supreme Court justices, if the court reporter had decided not to leave that in there, the case would have been lost to history among thousands of uninteresting tax cases. So the actual case is just an uninteresting tax case. So that part of the headnote is not in the actual opinion. Remember, this is an old case from 1886. This wouldn't happen today. If the headnote makes a claim that's not in the actual opinion itself, a lawyer who wanted to use the headnote would get in trouble. At least he would get admonished by a judge who's trying to listen to his argument or reading his brief. He would say, you're quoting the headnotes. That's not what we're looking at. We're only looking at the opinion written by the court. 
that's one of the things you learn in law school as well. You don't quote the head notes. The head notes are not the case, but that's what happened here to a lot of people, and that's why there's a confusion. This case does not stand for the proposition that corporations have any rights. They just didn't deal with it. It didn't say yes or no. It didn't deal with it at all. It just dealt with whether or not a particular California tax was legally applied to these railroads. But what about this issue? This issue that isn't actually addressed in the opinion, but mentioned in the head notes. Should a corporation be given due process or equal protection under the 14th Amendment? So what would a libertarian think? And as far as I'm concerned, what is the actual correct reading of the Constitution in such a case? Let's look at due process. Due process says, among other things, that you cannot take an individual's property without some kind of process for him to claim his property, right? The government just can't take it from you. Even with civil asset forfeiture, which we'll get into at another time, but not today, there's still some process. Now, it's ridiculous that it's not, it should not be considered due process because it's tied to an allegations of a crime, yet they can keep it without even charging you with the crime. All right, those are issues we'll talk about later, and it's absurd. But even then, for our purposes, talking about due process, some kind of process to challenge the taking of your property is available. Due process says you can't just take it without any process. So leaving the travesty of civil asset forfeiture behind, the government could not come and confiscate a hot dog stand or a bicycle owned by an individual without at least starting some kind of process. They can't just take it and say, tough luck. The fact that the hot dog stand is incorporated doesn't change that. Or think about your car. The police can't just take it from you without any reason whatsoever. And just because you're owned by a huge corporation doesn't change that. Because again, the corporation, no matter how big, is just a voluntary association, a voluntary collection of individuals. If there are a million stockholders, each one owns one millionth of that car if they all own one share. Property rights are not affected by how many people own something. So yes, due process under the 14th Amendment should apply to corporations because corporations are just a collection of individuals. And that's the important way to think about it. A corporation isn't some evil entity, which is what many central planners and socialists like to think, that the government must control these things. Therefore, corporations are evil and they don't get rights. Corporations are just people. They are just a collection of people in a voluntary association. And as far as equal protection goes, and we talked about Brown versus the Board of Education, says you can't treat treat people differently based on their race. That's just one obvious example. And well, now it's obvious. So you can't have one set of schools for black kids and another set of schools for white kids. That's obvious. But should the government be able to treat corporations differently based on the race of the individuals who own the company? Of course not. Why anyone thinks that the ownership of a corporation would make any difference is beyond me, except as we talked about, some people don't believe in the private ownership of the means of production. So they want different laws for corporations than for individuals because corporations are evil and greedy, they say, unlike politicians and bureaucrats, right? There's an obvious flaw in their argument. It's laughable, but it's real. So since this is just a regular old tax case, let's still talk about it. Who are the parties? You got Santa Clara County. That's a local government, right? Fresno County is also a party to the case, but Santa Clara was listed first, so they get in the name. The Southern Pacific Railroad Company, a railroad company. They're also, the Central Pacific Railroad Company was in the case, but Southern Pacific was listed first. So it's local governments against railroad companies. Nothing too exciting about that. And just for those that aren't familiar with California, Santa Clara County is in the southeast portion of San Francisco Bay. So it's on the water there. And it's including Palo Alto, which is where Stanford is, and San Jose, which is obviously a pretty big city because that's where the NHL San Jose Sharks play. Fresno County is southeast of Santa Clara County. doesn't have any shoreline. And of course, it includes the city of Fresno. It's right in the middle of the state, basically. And between Santa Clara County and Fresno County, there is Merced County. So there you have that. And how much track was in each county that was relevant to this case from these railroad companies that the counties wanted to tax? Just over 59 miles of road railroad was in Santa Clara County and almost 18 miles were in Fresno County. 
So that's what we're talking about. Again, as the commentator said, this is a boring tax case without the controversial head note. So the counties wanted taxes to apply to these railroad companies, and the railroad company said, no, we don't owe those. The dispute involved the California Constitution, California statutes, and the federal charters given to the railroad companies. Now, the federal charters are their own problems, but we won't get into that today. So you have an idea about the money involved. In one case, Santa Clara County claimed that the railroad owed it just over $13,000, which equals $331,000 in 2018. There's a cool website that I've been using that does this inflation calculation. I'll put it in the link for show notes. Another example of this, this is another important thing, which I think ties in with all of us. In 1988, this is just an example of inflation and using this website to figure out what a certain amount of dollars in the past are now worth today. So in 1988, which is 30 years ago, Hans Gruber attempted to steal $640 million from Nakatomi Plaza. Using this website, I found out that in 2018 dollars, that would be $1.368 billion. That's over doubled or the value has decreased by half. Thanks, Fed. Everything ties back to government planning, right? The Fed is just centrally planning how much money should cost and how much money supply there should be. The Russians and the, well, the Soviets couldn't properly price bread or toilet paper. And yet here we are in 2018 and we still think some government agency can properly price the amount of money that is necessary or the cost of money, how much it should cost to borrow money. And the interest rate and the money supply is far more complicated than the production of bread. Yet here we still are. So the other cases that were consolidated were in that same range of money. The cases were originally brought in California state court. The railroads moved it to federal court because they said there were constitutional issues. And nobody really disputed that. And so they did argue them. They did argue constitutional and federal law issues. But the U.S. Supreme Court did not rely on those to make their decision. So when it was removed to the federal court, the circuit court ruled in the railroad's favor, and then it was appealed to the Supreme Court. And these are some of the facts that the Supreme Court mentions. So there was an 1866 Act of Congress, which created the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad Company, which had the power to construct and maintain, by certain routes, a continuous railroad and telegraph line from Springfield, Missouri to the Pacific Ocean. This was for the purpose avowed by Congress, facilitating the construction of the railway line and thereby securing the safe and speedy transportation of mail, troops, munitions of war, and public stores. It's a right-of-way over the public domain given to the company and a liberal grant of the public land was made to the company. There's some corporatism right there. You think politically connected railroad company guys got free stuff from the government? That's exactly what happened. The railroad to be constructed... Every part of it was declared to be a post route and military road subject to the use of the United States for postal, military, naval, and all other government service and to such regulations as Congress might impose for restricting the charges for government transportation. So the government's going to regulate how much this railroad can charge it. And the Congress gave a lot of land to some individuals who voluntarily formed a railroad company, or they were in a railroad company, a voluntary association. Congress gave them a bunch of land to build a railroad for those reasons mentioned. And if you haven't watched the TV show Hell on Wheels, check that out. It's a good show, but it also demonstrates the corruption that went on during this railroad expansion west. All these government handouts to politically connected individuals, individuals who happened to be in charge of corporations. So in this particular case, the railroad company were unhappy with the California tax that valued their property 
among other things, without any deduction for any mortgage on that property. California apparently allowed other property to have that deduction when taxes were being decided. The railroads argued that the provisions of the Constitution and laws of California in respect to the assessment for taxation of the property of railway corporations operating railroads in more than one county are in violation of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. They argued that, and thus California was imposing upon them, the railroad companies, an unequal burden and to the extent denying it of the federal protection of the laws under the 14th Amendment. So the railroad, railroads made that argument, but the Supreme Court did not rule based on it. They didn't have to get there in their opinion. This case was unanimous in the Supreme Court, and the opinion was written by our old friend, the original Justice John Marshall Harlan. This is the same guy who was the lone dissenter in Plessy v. Ferguson, as we discussed in that case. And just a quick callback to that, a highlight from his dissent, he said, The thin disguise of equal accommodations for passengers in railroad coaches will not mislead anyone, nor atone for the wrong this day done. So in Plessy v. Ferguson, that's when they adopted, the U.S. Supreme Court adopted the doctrine of separate but equal and said, yeah, state of Louisiana can mandate separate railroad cars for black people and white people because, hey, they can be separate as long as they're equal. Plessy was overturned in Brown versus Board of Education, largely based on what John Marshall Harlan said in his dissent back in the late 1890s. So this Justice Harlan was the grandfather of the later Supreme Court Justice with the same name, who we talked about recently. The grandson wrote the opinion for the U.S. Supreme Court in Fleming v. Nestor, which was episode 10 of the law. And that case says, correctly and obviously to me, you've got no property interest in Social Security benefits because Congress can alter or abolish them at any time. So this granddad and grandson keep popping up in these big cases. And regarding that Supreme Court case, Fleming v. Nestor, you know, people who believe they've got a property interest have just been lied to, and unfortunately many of them believe it. They've been through. You paid into Social Security like you paid into the war on poverty. They took your money and it was gone forever the second it was out of your paycheck. Just a quick aside on the first Justice Harlan, he belonged to several different political parties over the years. Remember, he lived before the Civil War and then later, much later after the Civil War. So there's a lot going on, obviously, in American politics. But before 1854, he was a Whig. Then he was a member of the Know Nothing Party for four years then a member of the Opposition Party for two, then a member of the Constitutional Union Party for four, then he became a Democrat for four years, and then became a Republican until he died. Just mentioning this because we have not always had a two-party duopoly in this country. Things can change if people refuse to accept them. Far too many people say, well, that's the way things have always been. Well, it's not always been. And Americans used to fight injustices like that, not make excuses for them, which is what far too many people in the duopoly or members of the duopoly do now. And I can kind of get it if you're a leader of it, if you're making money off of it, if you're Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell, right? They directly benefit from the existence of the two-party duopoly. But just people that work and vote, they don't benefit from it. Yet by habit, they just keep supporting it. And I know we mentioned Etienne de la Boetie some in the past. The reason tyrannies have power over people is because people just give it to them. So let's stop giving it to them. Another boring part of this particular case, this railroad case in Santa Clara, one issue is whether or not the value of fences along the railroad right-of-way should be taxed to the railroad companies or how. Harlan wrote, the original Harlan, wrote that if the defense arguments that the state law doesn't allow the taxes imposed, if that argument is tenable, there will be no occasion for the court to consider the grave questions of constitutional law upon which the case was determined below. For in that event, the judgment can be affirmed upon the ground that the assessment of the taxes cannot properly be the basis of a judgment against the defendants. 
So in other words, if the state didn't have state authority to tax like they did, there's no need to discuss any potential constitutional issues, which they did not do in the actual case. And that's what they held. So the boring conclusion is that upon such an issue, the law we think is for the defendant, that's the railroad companies. An assessment of that kind, that tax, is invalid and will not support an action for the recovery of the entire tax so levied. As the judgment can be sustained upon this ground, it is not necessary to consider any other questions raised by the pleadings and the facts found by the court. So they didn't get into the 14th Amendment question. It was mentioned in the head note, which is not part of the case. So we've learned something about how to read Supreme Court cases, what this case actually meant, and we've discussed corporations' rights and individuals and rights and how they interrelate. Once again, I hope everybody has an awesome Thanksgiving. I am DK Williams, and this has been The Law. This is episode 13, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad. As always, we're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holler at me with your comments. Go to Twitter at Blue Carp. I want more Twitter followers. Please spread the message. Share this if you're so inclined. I, I would appreciate it. Go to facebook.com slash bluecarp. That's me. And as always, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously. <laughs>